Content warning. Discussions of violence, abortion, war, torture, death of adults, children and babies, current politics in the UK, US and cannibalism that some people may find disturbing. Welcome back to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for listening. This is episode 7, Portrait of a Witch, part 2. This episode is dedicated to Eleanor Henderson. To be honest, when we when we planned this episode, I thought we were just going to be, you know, making fun of of cartoons and silly old wives tales of like how how silly it is that women look like this but it's very when you're when you're talking it just feels very um i don't know current i guess like you can feel like yeah and you can see the the similarities um between obviously we don't really know what life was like we're just forming a picture for ourselves and also for our listeners but there are so many quite a few similarities actually and you can see it and sort of the tone and so like the way some women are attacked, especially like you were saying, women with an opinion, um, <laughs> women who actually have a lot to to offer and we can learn a lot from them. And instead we're just like, well, I don't like what she's saying. She's clearly a witch. <laughs> um, and it it's, yes, it's uh, it's not what I thought we were going to be talking about. We could delve honest. into Disney and, and fairy tales a bit, I guess. But the thing is that yeah, if you look at, the witchy figures in popular culture, in a way they're still problematic because they're still recycling a view of what women ought to be versus a view of what it looks like when women are bad. And I mean, okay, there's been some pushback. You know, we could talk about whether the Maleficent films have been successful as a pushback. We could talk about whether the Frozen films have been successful given that Snow Queen is kind of witchy. Um, But my sense is that the vast majority of girls are still exposed to an ideology whereby the good side is the same as the young pretty side. Yes. Yeah. Young, ridiculously thin pretty side, I might add. Um, That's something that's kind of interesting, because if you look at the 17th century, um, if we're talking about witches back then, you would assume a lot of the time that they're under fed malnourished, especially if they've been in prison for some period of time, like you were saying, if unless their family was bringing them food, they probably wouldn't have access to food. So they probably would have been quite skinny. And I know going back a couple hundred years, if you did look bigger, that was seen as a good thing because you were well-fed and that meant you had money. But now we've got the opposite of, well, you shouldn't be bigger. And if you look at Disney and you look at like Ursula the Sea Witch back, what, 30 years ago, I think that film came out, The Little Mermaid. It's like we change what a witch is depending on how society, what society views as bad. And absolutely at the time, right. a bigger yeah, person absolutely. is viewed as bad. And, and particularly a bigger person who is seen as self-confident as well as older. Um, I mean, Ursula is a really interesting figure to think with in those respects because the pushback figures that I mentioned, Elsa and Maleficent, are still really gorge. Um, actually. So there is some sense in which, again, this comes back to the idea that women who aren't being useful reproductively, which also means being useful sexually, aren't of value. So they're not, we're not supposed to feed them. And the fact that they're eating a lot means they're greedy. 
Yeah. So this, again, yeah. um, the, the familiar form of this, I'm afraid, would be the benefits cheat mother, who's often portrayed as sort of fat and lazy. And this is where I'm just going to reference. Glyndebourne did a production of um, Engelbert Humperdinck's opera, Hansel and Gretel. Um, and instead of having a witch with a gingerbread house, they had a witch ushering, ch ushering children into the sweet style of a supermarket, a huge plus size witch which seemed to make pretty clear the class dynamics that are now associated with obesity as well as the gender politics. And also, if you think about it, Ursula used to steal human souls, didn't she? So it's like the, yes. the baby grabbing. So oh, I'm my goodness. Also, <laughs> Ursula, as far as I know, was based on a drag queen. I think I'm right. So you know what you were saying it about is. kind of gender really? queer politics? Um, mm -hmm. It was like based on the kind of the gender ambiguity as well so there's a lot yeah. looking at Ursula there's a lot to unpack about what people were kind of scared of and thought of which was at the time the film came out um, yeah you're right because when I look at when I think about her hair she's got a sort of slick back quiff almost an Elvis quiff yeah, yeah that's one yeah yeah and, and also there's an interesting kind of moment of near engulfment when she seizes the male power object the trident from King Neptune and swirls up to enormous size, which seems to epitomize what it is that we dread about women being larger than a size six. But fun fact about female tininess, this is emphasized by Naomi Wolf in her iconic book, The Beauty Myth, where she says, whenever women get access to and break through glass ceilings, gain access to a new area of life or a new part of the workplace, the body type expectation for women gets smaller. So she cites the 1920s when women got the vote, the 1960s when women became politically active and there was second wave feminism, the 1990s where women really entered the professions, in some cases even became a majority in the professions, as moments when the body norm reduced in size. So it was as if in order to be allowed in those workplaces, you had to promise that you weren't going to consume or promise that you weren't going to be needy or promise that you weren't going to take up space by your demeanor, clothing and body type. Um, so past the um, attributes of like, you know, um, oh, you look like a witch or you sound like a witch, you speak like a witch. Were there any other identifying markers? Because obviously witches had to pass tests to be definitely, you're definitely a witch. Well, we've got two things. The identifying marker that you supposedly could see as it were in the street was that witches were associated with being lopsided somehow. So if you had only one eye or if you were born with one eye blue and one eye brown, or if you were lame, um, and obviously a lot of elderly women in this period would have been lame because yes. we're a bit short on drugs for osteoarthritis. And in fact, a lot of the pictures of them from, you like search for 17th century witch and a lot of them are carrying canes or crutches. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sign. But in addition, what you're also talking about is the midwives searching witches' bodies for witch marks. And that takes a very particular form in England. On the continent, when you're looking for a witch mark, what you're looking for is a diabolical seal, almost like writing that the devil has left on the body, might look like a tattoo even. In Britain, and 
particularly in England, this is in English more than a Scottish thing, what you're looking for is the place where the familiar demon suckled on the witch's body. So you're looking for a teat. Now, the idea is that demons, because they're ick, are going to go for your lower body parts because those are ick. Yeah, I know. Um, and particularly, they're going to kind of cluster around the anus. Um, so probably a lot of witches' teats, eagerly identified by, by um, midwives, were hemorrhoids, actually, which again goes with the elderly woman thing. Oh. And the other possibility, which if you're scared now, get more scared. Um, the other possibility, there are certainly witch trials where they identify something more towards the front of your bits. And it's very clearly the clitoris in a couple of cases that they decide is a sort of cheat from which your evil demon has been suckling. So that's profoundly scary. Remember in this period, it's only fitfully understood that there even is the clitoris and that women might experience sexual pleasure through the clitoris. It, it's something that the great anatomist Vesalius actually denies when one of his apprentices finds one and shows it to him on a cadaver. He says, oh, that's some kind of abnormal growth. You, know, you can't put it in the book. It, it can't be real. Um, exactly. So in a world like that, where you're looking around for some sort of pathological thing on women's lower bodies, it seems highly likely that some people are going to misidentify the clitoris thus. But we also know that some midwives did know what it was and what it was for. We know that from Jane Sharp's midwife book. Thing is, knowledge, I guess, before, before TV, but certainly before the internet, circulated quite slowly. You needed to you know, be patient. You needed to get it from somebody else. It was difficult to, to understand scientific discoveries. And perhaps as a result, women's genitalia have a weirdly sort of on-off history it's like each generation has to rediscover excitedly that there is such a thing as the clitoris. Um, and the, the hiatuses might suggest that it was possible to misinterpret it, even if you were yourself a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I've got something that's kind of related to this, but also not. I don't know if you know much about this, Diane. I'm assuming you do, but kind of it relates because of the image of women flying in broomsticks and flying ointment that all had a sexual connotation to, to it some as well, extent it? yes it did though the real thing about flying ointment is that it's made of dead babies really what's, the idea what's made of dead babies you boil dead babies in a cauldron and yeah. typically skim off the fat and that's what you make the flying ointment with right they were really obsessed with women killing babies yeah absolutely i mean this is definitely connected and and there is some sense in which the refusal of reproduction is itself a sexual crime. So killing a baby is going to go with seeking sexual pleasure too much and particularly seeking the wrong kind of sexual pleasure, i.e. from masturbation, from any kind of self-pleasuring, because that's unreproductive sex. Remember that they, they literally believed poor souls. I hope this is fit for your podcast, but never mind that in every ejaculate, there was this sort of little baby homunculus that was just searching for a warm womb to shelter in, like a lost dog. And so they felt deeply sad and upset at the idea that such a little being, being might be wasted or discarded. Um, therefore, they felt that for women, the purpose of sex was to welcome in this tiny mannequin 
um, as in welcome, it, welcome them in, into their wombs. In a way, again, the broomstick is kind of an antithesis of that because it's not going to lead to a little baby. Because I thought it was just like, well, it's something that is associated with women, so obviously they would have a broomstick. Plus there's an additional factor connected with the familiar and the suckling that I was speaking about, and that is that there's an association between fairies and sweeping that yes. you might just possibly pick up from Shakespeare. Shakespeare's puck sweeps behind the door. Um, and there's, if you're good at sweeping and you're a very cleanly housewife, the fairies are meant to reward you and kind of like you for living up to this patriarchal ideal whereby you're doing the ironing at midnight or, or spinning all the time or whatever. Then they, they rubbish it some more because if you haven't kept it clean. Whereas if you keep it clean, they will make it even cleaner. The idea is. So there's some sort of link between the fairy figure and kind of domestic enforcement. And Emma Wilby from Exeter University has argued that many familiars um, described at witch trials probably actually are household fairies, brownies or hobs, because they're described in many witch trials as, as if they were pets. The feeding, the familiar, as if it was a breastfeeding baby is a kind of extension of that. So arguably the broom kind of fits in with this whole nexus of material around fairies. And what then happens in the 17th century is that a bunch of people, as I said, who've read long books without pictures about demons, decide that fairies are really just demons and that these elderly women in the countryside are just a bit stupid and don't realize that they're entertaining demons. Um, and that, you know, perhaps quite a harmless small pet might really be a demon in disguise. Um, but the housewife herself might actually have thought of herself as having an interaction with something supernatural. It's a bit more of a gray area, a household brownie or hob that helps you with the housework and maybe makes you a bit lucky and that you reward with a bottle of milk or cream. But this is then reinterpreted by the trial magistrates as proof of demonic pacts. Uh, you're, you're mentioning fairies, but... Um... We sort of earlier on in the podcast series, we we spoke about how this moment in time, a lot of um, people's attitudes and ideas of of magic and also of fairies was changing. So, do you think this would have been something around our witch trials that sort of people in Newcastle upon time would have thought about um, with fairies? Um, if you went out into the countryside around Newcastle, you probably would still find people with fairy beliefs but they would have learned to shut up about it when talking to people from the city. Right. That makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was just going to add is that before fairies, even, there are also lots of stories about Jews kidnapping Christian children, which might actually be the basis for some of the fairy stories. Um, so unfortunately, this is linked. Um, and so if you look at um, some of the illustrations of witches in earlier versions of fairy stories, um, again, I'm going to pivot to Hansel and Gretel. The idea that a witch wants to bake a child in an oven is a direct lift from a certain kind of blood libel story about Jewish bakers baking Christian children in their ovens and serving them up as unleavened bread. This is a podcast, so nobody can see our faces, but... Um... We're, you know, sitting here quite shocked hearing that. Um, I imagine people listening are shocked to hear that too. It just, it's hard to believe anybody would have the capacity to invent a story like that. Um, 
and sort of target a group of people all for the sake of, of you know, of what? Of scaring children and, and women and society into conforming, I suppose. Yeah, and what you're really afraid of is, I suspect yourself, that I would actually suggest that all these stories about lost babies and burned babies and baked babies and so on are kind of projections. This is a period where mothers aren't don't have any capacity to vent about those moments where your children are kind of hateful. Um, there's been a running kind of meme on social media about moments when you hate your husband, but <laughs> I've never seen one about moments when you hate your children even now. But any sane mother would admit that there are moments when the blighters are a giant nuisance and also where they seem to be capriciously rejecting you. That, and the classic moment tends to be food provision. There you are trying to feed them and they are rejecting every spoonful and spitting it out and hurling it to the ground. Um, and at those moments, you're not allowed and there's no cultural space in which you can say, God, for God's sake, just eat it. I just spent hours pureeing it. It's really healthy. <laughs> Please, just there's no cultural space where you can say you're a demon, aren't you? You've been transformed into a horrible fairy changeling, haven't you? Um, but those stories must have been a great outlet once upon a time in a period where women were even more kind of driven into motherhood because that was virtually the only thing you could be, especially after Protestantism, where you couldn't even be a nun. You could only be a mother. That was your only function. So, you know, what if you hated it? What if there were times when you couldn't make it work? What could you possibly do? You had to find someone to blame. You need to find a way of managing a society where everyone has to be a mother, but you've also got postmenopausal women. What do you do with them? You've also perhaps got women who aren't naturally very good at being mothers. You've got a massively declining economy. Um, the Civil War completely trashes food production and means that there's widespread hunger, which is worsened by the Little Ice Age. How do you manage a society where every woman is supposed to be dedicated to feeding her child, but not all of them can? I personally am not a mother. Um, I have friends and family that uh, are. And I, you know, sometimes I, I see the stress that they're put under um, to meet sort of definitions of what what mothering is, what it is to be a good mother. Um, I, yeah, obviously, <laughs> things have not changed. Um, and equally, I see almost the policing of women who choose not to be parents, who, yeah, who, who don't want to have children or who can't have children. Um, and that's sort of almost, it comes across as almost being offensive that you don't have children. Um, why aren't you having them? When are you having children? All this yeah, stuff. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, and we still have that rhetoric such that it's still transgressive to declare at your kind of ages, oh, I really don't want children. And often older women particularly are the ones who enforce this and will say, oh, you'll change your mind later. Or worse still, the mother, give me grandchildren. I think I've said it in a previous episode. You realise when you talk about it and you start getting into it that nothing has really changed. We just keep putting like different like pictures and different kind of masks over what the problems are and keep blaming different things for them. But at the end of the day, the same problems have kind of almost always yeah, been there. Absolutely right. 
and, and it's quite often the case that historians pride themselves on the fact that we don't persecute witches anymore. But in fact, that's not true. We do still persecute them. We do still have all kinds of ways to label women in the same sort of way that we once labeled witches. Okay, admittedly, you might say that we didn't, in fact, in the end, put Hillary Clinton on trial for her life. You might say that in the end, we've refrained from actually sort of setting fire to the thatch of people's houses if we don't like the way they looked at us when we were making a cake. But it's nevertheless the case that we have our own mechanisms for making their lives difficult to the point of impossible and for taking stuff away from them. And the only thing that's really stopping us from actually persecuting them, I suspect, is the fact that at the moment, the elite doesn't side with the persecutors. If that were to change again, which is all that caused the witch trials actually, then we could go back to having witch trials because the mentality is still in place. That is absolutely terrifying. Sorry, I'm not laughing. I think Maria's just horrified. (laughs) Maria's having a breakdown. Totally understandable, actually. And yeah, I'm sort of serious about that because one of the things we've seen over the past five to 10 years is the growth of irrational beliefs with no evidential basis. And, And when that happens, we're not very far off the kinds of beliefs that lead people actively to persecute. Thank you so much, Diane, for, for joining us um, and for sharing all this incredible knowledge and insight. Yes, so much. It's, it's like, like Caitlin said, like it's been fascinating, horrifying and informative all in one. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's fantastic to be part of such an intriguing and important enterprise. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Newcastle Witches Podcast. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter as the Newcastle Witches Podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again soon with a new episode.